Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a time to um, worship you. Thank you for a time to connect with other people who long to do that same thing. And for those who are curious and intrigued and looking into who you are, uh, Jesus, I ask that we would be, um, we would all actually grow in our appreciation for the beauty and the wisdom and the power of Jesus, whether we've been in church since we were, our mom was pregnant, um, all the way up to those who this is their first time in a gathering today, God, would we all have a new experience with the person and teaching of Jesus? This is his name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so if you're new, my name is Andy, one of the pastors here at Restored, and it's actually week three of a series that we're calling About That Life. Uh, it's a series on what it means to actually follow Jesus, and the series is actually about the Sermon on the Mount. So it's Jesus' most famous sermon. Uh, it's a sermon, uh, it's, it's where he unpacks what it means to follow him and live in his kingdom. And it's really foundational core teaching. Matter of fact, in the early church, it would have been something many people would have memorized. Uh, this is our ethic. This is how we approach life. And so what we've been doing is uh, we, it's been kind of a slow burn to get to the sermon itself. So week one, we felt like a sermon preached by Jesus. Uh, the first sermon uh, in the series should be, who is Jesus? And Grant taught that, like, who is the one who preached this sermon? The second week, uh, we talked about what does it mean to be a disciple? If, if the Sermon on the Mount is a framework or a groundwork or an ethical foundation for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, we probably need to mean, what, it, what does it mean, what is a follower? What is a disciple? And Grant did a really good job of talking about that. And so today, I'm going to move into what is the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually going to move into the text, uh, the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, we're actually still not going to touch his words. <laughs> well, we will a little bit um, on the back end. But, but Matthew chapter 5, if you guys have Bibles, turn there. Uh, if you don't, you can look up here. I'd re I recommend looking up here uh, rather than going to your phone from a distraction standpoint, but to each his own. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 1. It says, when he, that he is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, dot, dot, dot. What is he about to teach them? What is this sermon? And that's really what I want to walk through today. I have two points today. The first one is this, what this sermon isn't and what this sermon is, blowing your mind. What this sermon isn't which is it's more complex than you might realize uh, throughout church history, and um, what this sermon is. Uh, by the way, we do believe that Jesus himself preached this sermon. We've got great reasons uh, historically and textually to believe that. Uh, there is some kind of, in the last hundred years, textual criticism, liberal scholars that would say um, Jesus himself probably didn't preach this. Matthew just kind of threw some stuff together. Um, and, and one of their reasons for that is there are other places in the Gospels where he teaches similar things, but it's not word for word identical. And what I would say about that is if you preach a lot, and you have values, you say the same things often in a different way. It's not like this, he's not, um, it, the other spaces and places, he's not saying things that are opposite to what he's saying here. Um, uh, they're just things that are worded a little bit differently, but the principles are the same, if that makes sense. So, so, so that's who's preaching, it's Jesus. And so we say, what this sermon isn't, okay? What this sermon isn't, I've got four points. The first one is this, it, it isn't just for societies and systems, it isn't just for societies and systems. Uh, one interpretation, again, what I want to talk about today quickly is there are different schools of thought throughout church history on how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think a lot of people end up in a similar space where we're going to end up today. Um, there are some uh, fairly popular in terms of history, uh, but had kind of big runs at different times, views. And so one of them is this. It's called the utopia view or the social reform view. 
And this is the idea that Jesus was teaching us how to have a perfect society or nation. How to have a perfect society or nation. If you really give yourself to this, by the way, you're, you're kind of, it's funny because uh, progressive theologians tend to push this, um, but it's also, it would be kind of a Christian nationalist vibe if you really got into the details on the Sermon of the Mount and applied them over, which I don't think is something they want to do. Um, and so, so the idea of this, is, again, is that, that Jesus is teaching us how to have a perfect society or a nation. Now, it's true the world would be a better place if everyone obeyed the sermon. But Jesus didn't set out to provide a roadmap for broad social reform, and we see that in the sermon itself. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Um, it does not seem that Jesus is focused uh, on fixing society, but on teaching his disciples on how to live in a hostile world, because he assumes most, most humans will not obey the Sermon on the Mount, which if it's a way to fix society, it just doesn't work if most people aren't going to do that. Um, again, when we look at sin, sin is complex. Sin has an individual uh, nature to it and a corporate nature to it. And again, progressive Christians tend to really focus in on systemic sin or structural sin, which is a real thing. But as they do that, they tend to focus, uh, as, they fo- as they tend to focus in on the systemic sin, they tend to ignore the individual sin. And the problem with that is that um, systemic sin is just the collective individual sin put on display and then kind of rinse and repeated over tens to hundreds of years. So you still have to get to the root of the individuals in the system. Uh, one non-Christian described going to kind of an old-school progressive church, kind of a Methodist Episcopalian church back in the day, and, and this, he said the sermon was on getting rid of our nuclear weapons. And he says they both spoke passionately about the need to get rid of our nuclear weapons. Their message did not connect with me because I do not own any nuclear weapons, so I left early. Now, the problem with focusing in on systemic problems alone is that systems, are again, are just groups of individuals. Um, You don't get systemic sin in a a system created by, maintained, and currently inhabited by godly, loving, amazing, humble people. You get it with people who are in sin doing their own thing collectively, organizing and working together to perpetuate their sin. Just like you don't get a a COVID outbreak in a people system if there isn't any unique individuals who had COVID. Like someone had to start it. There had to be a patient zero, if you will. Um, so again, the idea that there isn't anything in this text for individual Christians uh, just would not make sense with so much that Jesus teaches here. I don't believe Jesus is teaching how to have a perfect society. Again, two problems with this view. Um, Jesus never says this is the purpose of the sermon. Uh, He frequently tells the disciples that this is teaching for them to obey or put into practice um, as individuals. Uh, The second thing is that Jesus teaches in Matthew 7 Again, that most of humanity will not obey the sermon, so it's hard to believe that he's teaching on how to fix society since since he knows that will not happen. Now, I want to be clear. If we live this sermon out and live as salt and light, it will impact societies and systems. It should. Wherever you live, wherever you're embodying your faith, the kingdom should, 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 should pop in a little bit. It should manifest itself through you. But that's a byproduct of our obeying Jesus. Uh, it's not the, the, the promise. It's not the purpose promised by Jesus. Like, if you guys obey, society or, or, or the nation will be perfect. Uh, number two, uh, the sermon is not an impossible ideal that no one can live out. 
It's not an impossible ideal that no one can live out. Again, some in uh, kind of the Reformed Lutheran Presbyterian tradition, uh, they teach that the ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is too hard for anyone to actually live out. Now, um, you can understand this perspective at some level. There is some really hard teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Be more righteous than the Pharisees. Um, again, the sermon, uh, so, so, so this view would say that the sermon is almost exclusively an ethical standard that can't be met to cause people to want to quit on trying to find the righteousness in themselves and to turn to the cross of Jesus. Again, Jesus literally says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You can understand where these people are coming from. Like he told people with a sin nature to be perfect. Um, this is wild. Um, therefore, again, with this view, many in the Reformed tradition have argued that the sermon is kind of a new law, uh, but not a law that we're expected to obey. Um, but, but the problem with this view is the New Testament consistently teaches that by God's grace, we can make progress in actually becoming like Jesus. The assumption is that you're going to stay the same. However, whatever condition you were in when you met Jesus, that you would stay that way for 50 years. I think uh, Grant mentioned this, that some people um, haven't been Christians for 20 years. They've been a, a one-year-old Christian 20 times over or whatever. That idea of perpetual immaturity is a real one for many people, especially the church in the West. But that's not what we are called to. In the New Testament, there's this idea that we're called to strive by God's grace and the power of his spirit to become people with the ethics of the New Testament. That we'd actually live the way Jesus calls us to live. Another problem with this interpretation is when do you stop using that interpretation? Like, if you can qualify Jesus' commands to not have to be obeyed, what can't you qualify? Like, how am I, why am I going to listen to John or Peter or James? It's like, Jesus just says stuff just because. And, and that's it. Uh, again, two other big problems with this view. One is um, Jesus does set a high ethical standard for life in the kingdom, but he also teaches some things in the Sermon on the Mount that I don't think are that hard. Like, don't brag when you fast. Now, again, fasting's hard, okay? Maybe, maybe you'd say that's hard, but, but it's not the hardest. It's not like Dallas Willard says the epitome of Christian maturity is what he calls spontaneous enemy love. When you have been sanctified to the point where someone could actively be wronging you and you could love them in the moment without thinking or praying about it. That's a far cry from, like, don't go on Instagram when you skip tacos, and so, again, some of the stuff here, it's like, it is a high standard. It should cause you to go, I need help. I need grace. I need Jesus. Um, I don't think it's impossible, right? Um, when you pray, don't talk on and on and on. I've been to some prayer meetings where I wish they obeyed that verse. Not the hardest thing. Just like, all right, let's, let's keep, it, keep it moving. The biggest problem with this view, though, that Jesus is just trying to get you to, like, give up on yourself and not actually obey this to cry out for grace is Jesus never gives an indication in the sermon. He doesn't expect us to obey it. On top of that, Matthew 28, he says, Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them everything I've commanded you, calling them to obey it. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount is full of commands. He doesn't say, except for the Sermon on the Mount. It was a social experiment. They've all quit, right? No, like, like that, that can't be what it is. Uh, the other one, the third one, this one's pretty niche, uh, but some of you guys may have heard it over the years. I have heard it over the years. Um, it's not just for people in the future. It's not just for people in the future. You're like, dude, we have a time-traveling reference? What's going on here, Andy? Not that exciting. Um, one of the most popular views of eschatology, and that's just a big word. It's, it's theology at the end of the world. Over the last hundred years in the Evangelical Church in America, it's called premillennialism. Um, I'm not going to get into, like, which one's right or whatever, but within premillennialism, uh, there's the belief that Jesus will return 
pre before a millennium. So pre-millennium. He'll return before a literal thousand-year reign that's just going to be like heaven on earth for just a thousand years. Then it gets wild again. But there's going to be a thousand years uh, of people just loving each other perfectly. And so some people, they got really into that theology and that, that kind of that ideology, that thinking. They were like, um, the world would look really beautiful if people obeyed the Sermon on the Mount. And it would look like a utopia, perfect world. So it's kind of like the future version of the, um, this is for societies and structures, not people. It's like one day all people will live this out perfectly. We'd say that's, that's fairly true. Like in heaven, we'll probably be perfect. But also some of the things of the Sermon on the Mount we're not going to need in heaven. So there's a lot of, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a perfect space. But essentially where they landed was this is a law for that thousand-year reign. So we can ignore it for now, Okay. Um, the problem with this, there is nothing in the Sermon on the Mount, again, that indicates that this is what Jesus is doing. In addition, it seems really convenient <laughs> that the School of Theology saw the ethical standards for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and they were like, I don't think these are for us. <laughs> Love your enemy, share your stuff, don't retaliate when wronged, forgive from the heart, give yourself to a life of sexual purity fast. This, I don't think this is for our age. I think this is for a different age, right? It's a more enlightened future sci-fi world. This is just a lot. Got a lot going on right now. I don't know if I need this. Uh, you know what? This is probably for the millennium. That's probably what this is for. And then lastly, it's not uh, teaching that you have to obey perfectly to enter the kingdom. It's not teaching that you have to obey perfectly to enter the kingdom. Uh, you could take Jesus' teaching here and turn it into some serious moralism. Uh, if you don't obey this perfectly, God's going to judge you. You're going to go to hell. Uh, you're going to be on your own. And we know that this can't be the way that this works for a lot of reasons. One, the New Testament over and over and over again says a completely different thing. Um, also, we know that the way into the kingdom is the king himself. It's Jesus. It, it, it's his life, his death, his resurrection. Um, we see a, a couple different things in the Sermon on the Mount that would tell us, like, he's not calling us to do this perfectly or else he, he's going to judge us. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us the Lord's Prayer a prayer that assumes you will sin every day and need forgiveness for that sin every single day. So it can't be, be perfect completely. Um, you can't ever mess up. Um, also, Jesus uh, teaches explicitly that God cares about you in multiple points in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there are warnings in the sermon about judgment, but they, they all have to do with the progression of giving yourself over to something and what ends up happening. For example, murder, uh, anger turning into murder. Like, you give yourself over to this, you are in, you're heading in a very bad direction. It could be you end up walking away from Jesus. A lot of them, though, have to do with the natural consequences of sin and living life your own way, not even inherently, not necessarily divine judgment. Um, again, there's consequences for committing murder. There's consequences for committing adultery. Uh, we can go on and on and on. But by Jesus warning us not to do these things and teaching us ways to fix what we have done he is clearly not teaching you have to be perfect or there is no hope. Because he's actually saying, here's how to engage lust. Here's how to engage anger, which doesn't make sense if none of us lust or have anger anymore if we're in his kingdom. He's saying, here's how to deal with this in my kingdom as my disciple. He isn't saying if you have anger, lust, or anxiety that you cannot be in the kingdom. He's teaching us how to live lives of freedom from those things. But he assumes we will struggle with them, hence the need for teaching. It's like a doctor who assumes we're sick and then teaches us about our treatment and the part we need to play to get well. Like, here's how healthy life works and how you can get there. 
So the, ser- the sermon isn't exclusively for societies and systems and not individuals. Uh, it's not an impossible ideal that no one can live out, though it is challenging. Um, it's not just for people in the future. It's, it, we'll experience the fruits of it in the future, but it is for today. And it's not teaching that we have to obey perfectly to enter his kingdom. Well, then what is it, right? You're like, dude, so many things it isn't. What is it? Um, what the sermon is, which is my second point, it's an invitation and description of how to live the good life in God's kingdom how to live the good life in God's kingdom. And it's something we actually grow into over time. Um, when you think about, and this is used a lot in the New Testament, the metaphor of being moved from one kingdom to another, or there's God's kingdom and, and there's other kingdoms. Um, the idea I want you to catch is if you move from one kingdom to another, you're essentially immigrating. You're moving from one kingdom to another. And if you move from one kingdom to another, even if you get your citizenship, if you are from a country where life is very different than it is in America, even if you got your papers and you're good to go, you're like, I am a citizen, or I have a green card, I am allowed to live here. Metaphor breaks down a little bit because you're a citizen forever, but it's fast. Uh, You know, at the cross, Jesus gives you, he moves you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, into light. Um, But there's still an adjustment period because you've lived in another kingdom your entire life, right? So you've spoke a very specific language, and you may or may not be able to speak that language day in and day out publicly in your new nation if not very many people know it or people at your job don't know it or, or whatever it is. Um, there may be food you ate all the time that, that you literally don't have the ingredients for uh, to, to make over here. It'd be tough. Um, the, the way your days are planned, the way people approach time and money and relationships and schedules. Uh, in other countries, when people are like, we should, we should do lunch, you know what they mean? We should do lunch. <laughs> Um, I've often found, though, when you go like, hey, we'll, we'll be there at 1130, they're like, we'll be there at 1. So, so again, it, it's, it's, they, they have a stronger commitment to the word about making it happen, uh, but, but time is way more fluid in those cultures. My point is, is that there's a whole way of doing life out here. There's an approach to sexuality and money and family and gender and language. We go on and on and on, right? And then you move into a new space, and there's a whole other view. And you're probably going to have a lot of conflicting stuff. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. There is no earthly nation that is the full ideals of the kingdom. So some of, your, your, some of you just being conflicted is, this is my original culture, and there's nothing wrong with it. Matter of fact, it's beautiful, and I don't need to fully assimilate in those ways. With the kingdom of God, Jesus' culture is perfect. His approach to these different areas of life are, are perfect, So when he says something about money or sex or power or anxiety or anger or whatever it is, we need to listen because there's life there. But the other thing I want you to catch is we're progressively learning to live in the kingdom with our good king. So even though you are in this kingdom through Jesus in an instant, that sanctification process of learning to live like a kingdom citizen is going to take time. Like, oh, I have that thing we used to do in my old country, but now I'm in a new country, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, not America. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? Dallas Willard defines the Sermon on the Mount this way. He says, when we have, what we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teachings on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space surrounding our bodies. It concludes with a statement that all who hear and do what he there says will have a life that can stand up to everything. That is a life for eternity because it is, all, it is already in the eternal. 
Willard continues, the aim of the sermon forcefully indicated by its concluding verses, I love this next part, is to help people come to hopeful and realistic terms with their lives here on earth by clarifying in concrete terms the nature of the kingdom into which they are now invited by Jesus' call. It's an invitation. A friend of mine is a spiritual director, describes the Sermon on the Mount this way. Jesus is inviting us to come to God through him and into the spiritual reality of God's kingdom of love. It's a wonderful place to be and an incredible power to live from. It's our Father's world, and through placing our confidence in Jesus, it can become our world too. It's a world that is glorious and eternal. Jesus welcomes us into being in the uh, welcomes us welcomes us to bring into the Trinitarian family universe our problems, our job, our relationships, our trials, our opportunities, our very lives. That was a big sentence. I'm going to read it one more time. Jesus welcomes us to bring into the Trinitarian family universe the world where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live, God. He invites us to bring into that universe our problems, our jobs, our relationships, our trials, our opportunities, our very lives. And so in his message, Jesus is not giving us new laws. He's helping us make sense of who God is and what the old law was. Another way to look at the Sermon on the Mount that I think is important is I think we can look at it as mostly burden. Um, it's an offer of help. How many of you guys feel like life is hard? Like genuinely, like you feel like life is hard. You're tired, okay? Um, life is hard and we need help. None of us were designed to do life on our own. Jesus is offering us help with this sermon. He's not, he's not offering burden. He's offering help. The end of Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Now, catch that real quick. What does he say? He says, everyone who what? Hears. What else? You got to act. Here's what I want you to catch, okay? A lot of us in the West, we love like just ideas, right? We love like hearing sermons, reading books, right? The other day, a book came, I don't know, I, I get a lot of books and uh, do a ton of reading, ton of research. I, I ordered a book recently and it was called Following Jesus. And Jackie's like, why do you need this book? <laughs> What's in here that's not been said? The book was just like discipleship. She's like, you, you're 20 years, you're a pastor almost 20 years. This book's going to blow your mind, right? Um, we, we love to overcomplicate with information. And again, I need to study, like it's important, but... It's not just hearing it, it's doing it. So many people have told me Christianity didn't work for me, and they never did it. Like, they mean Sunday services got boring, and people were kind of mean after a while, and relationships are complicated. You never gave the, obeying Jesus a real try. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because it was found, its foundation was on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. All around us, and even us, if we're honest, some of us, we're trending in a direction where we're headed for a great crash because of how we're living, because we have unexamined lives. We just let everyone tell us what to believe, and, and we just, we're just going with the flow. We're drifting. And here's the thing. Trials are coming either way. Trials are coming for everybody. But when they come, will you be ready? Jesus is teaching us to live well in a life full of trouble. These are very small versions. I've had harder things happen in my life. Harder things will probably happen in my life in the future. But just in the last two weeks, um, I just feel tired. Uh, I had COVID. My wife got COVID. And we had an extended family member who went through a severe health situation that required a lot of help from us. Um, I don't know about you guys. Typically, when it gets more stressful, our marital communication doesn't get better. We got to like slow down. Uh, our kids got sick with a non-COVID. Like we beat COVID. It was like, we got a new illness. We're into COVID negative. Uh, okay, but you got something else. Uh, I experienced temptation in two different areas that I haven't experienced in a while. Uh, yesterday, our car broke down, and it did not sound good. There's ones where you're like, I think it might be the battery. I'm like, that's not the battery. I don't want to know. <laughs> Had some relational tension with a friend recently. Like, I my big idea is this. I'm not trying to make you feel sorry for me. What I want you to catch is trials are in this fallen world. We're walking around in every day. A lot of you guys have worse stuff than me the last two weeks. We need Jesus' help and wisdom so badly. Like, you don't have it figured out. Like, there's wisdom you need. You need to submit to something bigger than you to teach you how to live, and so do I. And his name's Jesus. A friend of mine... Um, a friend of mine, uh, he's in seminary, and he has basically one seminary professor that really oversees his, uh, his theological cohort, and that guy defines grace as help. He said that's probably the best word that sums up all the Greek uses of grace. It's help. And friend, help is what Jesus gives us in this sermon. He invites us into a new way to actual transformation. Many of us have never learned how to handle our anger, how to handle our anxiety, how to handle our sexuality, how to handle our money, how to relate to God, how to do conflict. I've felt, uh, and I think a lot of you guys might resonate with this, I've felt so often feelings of jealousy when I'm with people who have good parents. Like, love Jesus, love them, kind, empathetic, uh, encouraging, challenging, but, but the thing I really wanted was teaching. And a lot of my friends, one of the things, and some of you guys had great parents who taught you real stuff. One of the things that I, I, I've actually realized is I, I really longed for teaching growing up. I mentioned this to you guys before. Like I learned, I learned about sex from a drug dealer. I learned about money from a very scared, poor lady. I um, learned about conflict in some real wild ways. And we can go on and on and on. And I felt in, in, in my life, Jackie and I felt at times like we have to recreate the wheel. Like we don't have the, the financial lessons or the emotional health lessons or the spiritual health 
stuff to fall back on. I know fam- no family's perfect. Please hear me. But, but some of us had some pretty good situations. Some of us didn't. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty about having good parents. I hope my kids are like, we learned a whole bunch of stuff from our parents. My, my kids have whole frameworks and groups of people they don't even know that I, we were dealing with all the time as kids. So I want that for them. But what I want you to catch is, is as much as I felt like kind of less than that I didn't have this teaching and modeling on how to, to do family and how to do marriage and how to do money and how to do all this stuff, actually there's this guy named Jesus who wants to teach me all kinds of things. It's like, I can teach you something about anxiety. I can teach you something about money. I can teach you something about whatever it is. And he gives us this sermon because he cares about us. He wants to teach us how to live in this world. It's an invitation to live well. Not to live sad and religious and moral. Whatever. It's a, a, a life lived well is a life that's reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. I just think about Jesus coming alongside me and just saying, my boy, when you get angry, my boy, when you get afraid, when you're tempted, when you're worried about what everyone thinks, remember these things. I'm here for you. Again, that spiritual director, but Amani says, all who take Jesus' words to heart and arrange their lives around them will be like a person who builds a house on a rock, never to be shaken, even in the storms and floods. In contrast, those who refuse to listen and obey build their house on sand. When the storms of life come, they can be sure that their house will collapse. What words is Jesus referring to when he says, those who hear these words and act on them? the Sermon on the Mount. He is talking about his command not to be ruled by anger or lust or deception, not retaliating or worrying or judging people. Strangely, many Christians simply ignore these teachings, seeing them as too hard or perhaps not necessarily for the ordinary Christian. I want to close with one more quote. It's a long one. I just, I was like, I'm not going to do better than this. And I just feel like it was it's so beautiful. It's um, by James Bryan Smith in his book, um, The Good and Beautiful Life. And I'll throw in a little commentary along the way. He says, uh, years ago, Gordon Livingston was a young lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division, trying to orient himself during a field exercise at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He writes, as I stood studying a map, my platoon sergeant, a veteran, approached. You figure out where we are, lieutenant, he asked. Well, the map says there should be a hill over there, but I don't see it. I replied, sir, he said, if the map don't agree with the ground, then the map is wrong. (laughs) Even at that time, I knew I had just heard a profound truth. Maps attempt to tell us the way things actually are. The closer a map comes to matching reality, the better it is. The same is true with our narratives. Some narratives are simply wrong. Other narratives, particularly those of Jesus, are exceedingly accurate, perfect even. We can easily tell the accuracy of the map by comparing it to the terrain it depicts. Lieutenant Gordon learned a great truth. If the map does not agree with the ground, the map is wrong. The ground is never wrong. Narratives, too, try to guide us, to to orient us, to tell us which way to turn. But if the narrative does not agree with actual life, the narrative is wrong. Friends, there are so many false narratives out there right now. We are exposed to more people's thoughts every day than our ancestors could ever dream of. Some of that's awesome. Some of it's real terrible, right? There's some people who are like, I don't care to know what you think about this topic. Like, you know what I'm talking about? You you have people in your life, it's on social media, you're like, I 
you know, uh, why do I fall? Why are we, why do we do this, right? 30 years ago, they just, they lived in Illinois. That's all you knew. Got an aunt in Illinois. Says wild stuff probably at dinner parties. I don't go to them. Now that dinner party is on your phone every day. But there, there's lies you tell yourself. There's lies from your family of origin. There's lies in politics. There's lies on social media. And they would love to tell you how to handle your sexuality, your anxiety, your anger, your identity, your money, your relationship. And by the way, guys, a lot of stuff's just not working. Jesus Ryan Smith continues, Jesus' narrative in contrast matches reality. No one has ever followed his teachings and been truly disappointed. No one has ever put his teachings into practice and found them false. His instructions perfectly coincide with reality. We will not find the good life any other way than by obeying Jesus. We must conform to his way. There's a lot of talk about, like, Culture and society are just so different. All this stuff's happening. It's really colliding with what the New Testament teaches about life and all this stuff. And I actually think a great apologetic's just like, how's your life going? We're going to keep obeying Jesus. We'll see how it goes over time. Not talking religion. I'm talking actually obeying Jesus. Doing conflict his way. Put that up next to outrage culture. We'll see who's happier in 10 years. Not in a mean way. Just, just to go, hey, Jesus' way, it does work. Um, James has this, uh, this lighthouse story. He says, one dark and stormy evening, a ship with a proud captain was heading directly into an oncoming ship. I, I, uh, I buried the lead because I called it the lighthouse story. Uh, basically, a guy, there's a captain of a big ship, and he is moving in a direction. And he's got a really fancy ship. He's like a high-ranking naval officer. And he's got like a dope ship that's important. And he basically is going back and forth with another ship. And he's saying, you need to move. And the other ship's like, you need to move. He's like, you don't know who I am. Like, I'm Admiral whoever. You need to move. And eventually the other ship's like, dude, we're a lighthouse. You're going to destroy your ship. Like, you can keep coming because of your pride and arrogance, but it's not going to work out for you. And with that idea, we should read the Sermon of the Mount this way. Jesus is not demanding we live his way in order to get his blessing or to get into heaven when we die. He is simply telling the truth about reality. He warns against lust, not because he's a prude, but because he knows it destroys human lives when unchecked. He tells us not to worry, not because it will give us ulcers, but because people who live with him in the kingdom of God need not worry. It is a waste of time. Lust and worry, judgment and anger, retaliation and pride are never good or beautiful and never lead to freedom. In fact, they are a flight from freedom. He says, we cannot find happiness or joy apart from a life of obedience to the teachings of Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because there is no such thing. God is not being stingy and withholding joy apart from our obedience. There simply is no joy apart from a life with and for God. God, please give me happiness and peace, we plead. But let me also live my life as I please. And God answers, I cannot give you that. You are asking for something that does not exist. And so the idea here is this, is that Jesus goes, you can follow me or not. I've come to give you abundant life. I've come to teach you. I've come to help you. And if you follow me, <laughs> I won't let you down. There's a lot that we give up to follow Jesus. There's so much more we give up to not follow Jesus. 
because it's a lighthouse. You can do your own thing. It just doesn't work. On the flip side, hear me, we don't have to recreate the wheel or hit up Google for everything that matters in life. Like we have a king who revealed himself as a teacher, a teacher to come alongside kids who don't know where they're going, who need direction, and he lovingly gives it to us. So as we move into this series, I, I'm praying, and I encourage you to even ask yourself these questions. I'm praying that you'd open your hearts to what Jesus wants to teach you. We all have a way of doing things. Like in our, you know, this is the way I always did it. And Jesus goes, there's a different way, but will you trust me? Will you not just hear me? Will you actually try to do the things I call you to do and, and see what happens? And honestly, I am often touched by the, by the idea of Jesus as Savior. I think we all are. Like, he, he died for me. He gave himself for me. But I'm telling you guys, this week, I've been so touched by the idea of Jesus as teacher. Jesus as Lord, who cho- not just, doesn't just die to reconcile us to God. That God comes down and goes, I want to teach you because I love you. Life is the way it is. I've got you. I want you to thank Jesus for what he did for you in the cross. Like his, his, his body was broken, his, his blood was shed. But also, would you, cha- would, would you thank him for inviting you, inviting you into a life in the kingdom, inviting you to a new way of life? It is such a gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us in our ignorance. One of the things John's gospel says so clearly, clearly is that Jesus came to reveal God. He, he entered our space, and he reveals God to us. God, would we not take lightly this idea of revelation? Jesus, you said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've revealed God himself to us, God in the flesh. You had the humility to empty yourself of divine privilege, and you came, and you lived, and you taught, and you keep teaching us by your spirit and through your church, through your word. God, I pray that every man and woman in this room would look more like Jesus in a year's time, would live in your kingdom, would feel excited at the opportunity and challenge to experiment with living in the kingdom, to experiment living with freedom from lust and pride and anger, jealousy and hypocrisy and deceit. God, I pray that we would feel excited to listen to your teaching. Even when it's scary, I pray it'd be exciting simultaneously. And I pray that we'd actually learn to obey you, that we'd be a people who don't just listen to sermons, but like we want to put what you said into practice. Would we be wise people? There are a lot of storms brewing all around us in our families and in our city and in our state and in our country and in this world. There is so much that's not the way it's supposed to be, and a lot of it comes for us. Lord, would we be people whose houses stand in five, 10, 20 years? Would we sacrifice maybe what we want at times to follow what you have to say to realize that what we gained was so much greater than what we thought we sacrificed, that dream or that desire, that thing maybe we made an idol of? And so, Lord, would you, would you make us a people who listen to your teaching, 
So thank you for coming and for teaching and for dying and for continuing to reveal through the sending of your spirit who you are, what you've done, and how you call us to live. And I pray we'd hear that call this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.